Our scripture is going to be from Matthew, as we've, of course, been studying together through this gospel. Matthew chapter 22 this morning. Matthew 22. Over the last few weeks, Jesus, as we've read the accounts, he's been confronted or challenged by various opponents, right? Um, he's had a political challenge put to him and a theological challenge and uh, an ethical challenge. And as he answered each one of those challengers, he silenced his critics, he astounded the crowds, and he's taught us some things that are very important in the process. And now at the end of all of this, Jesus just turns the tables. And after these series of three questions, he puts a question to them. And that's our text for today. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies, until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the Bible says no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, the Pharisees and others had already challenged Jesus on a number of fronts, right? Politically, theologically, ethically, they've asked him all of their questions and Jesus has answered them. And I, I want to remind us that there is value in answering people's questions, in giving a defense, uh, an answer, an apologetic for the Christian faith. Jesus, though, in the end, he goes really right to the very heart of their opposition. And that is not politics, not the doctrine of the resurrection or, or some ethical question. The, the real issue, the, the heart issue is Christology. What do they think about him? And that is the key. I remember years ago um, traveling in a car with a, a number of our teenagers from the church here, some of the teen guys on a long road trip. And one of them began to ask me about um, creation, Genesis, uh, Adam and Eve, origins of the world, and all of these things. At that time, he was in the public school, and he was hearing a lot of criticism in his public school of a Christian worldview of origins. And so we talked through a lot of the things I remember just about different evidences that support the biblical account. But in the end, I, I turned to him and I said, Leon, what do you think about Jesus? Do you trust him? And it was, it seemed like in that moment that 
something kind of just clicked and that the, the, the questions that were swirling around in his mind were, were to a large me measure settled. Because when you've come to believe in Christ, then you have a lot less challenging a time believing whatever he believed. Because you are persuaded that he is the son of God and your savior, the only hope that you have. Where else will I go? For you have the words of eternal life. When you feel that way, when you believe that way, then everything else begins to come into the light. And what was once obscure now becomes more clear. So Christology, what you believe about Jesus Christ is really at the heart of so much. And so I want to encourage you when people challenge you with questions about Christianity, answer their questions, but go back to Christ because that is the one great issue that every man and woman has to deal with. That's the question that has to be answered. What do you think? of the Christ. Jesus puts it that way, just to the Pharisees. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And by asking this question of the Pharisees, Jesus is really presenting them with two challenges. First, he is directly challenging their inadequate conception of the Messiah. And secondly, he is subtly challenging their own acceptance of his personal identity. But first, he implies that their conception of the Messiah is far too small. It's too limited. They, don't, they haven't comprehended yet the grandeur with which the scriptures speak of Messiah. The word Christ, you probably know, is just a transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which means someone who is anointed. And that, in turn, is the translation of the Hebrew term Mashiach, which we just transliterate as Messiah. So people were anointed with oil, right? We've read about that many times. If you've read through your Bibles, you've read, no doubt, accounts of people being anointed. This was a special ceremony that marked a person as someone who was set aside for special service for God in among the people of Israel. It was a picture of the unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit to fit them for, for leadership and service among the people of God. Most of the time it was kings who were anointed, usually anointed by the high priest. But priests themselves were also anointed for the task, according to Exodus chapter 40, verse 15. And prophets as well were anointed, like Elijah told, was told to anoint Elisha to be his successor as the leader of the prophets. Um, sometimes one of these people, um, the king perhaps, would be referred to as a kind of Messiah, small m Messiah, an anointed one. David refers to Saul as God's Mashiach or God's anointed one. 
However, as the prophets continued to use this term, it became increasingly clear through the prophetic writings that there was in their minds, revealed to them by God, there was a great end time ideal anointed one who would deliver the people of God in an ultimate way, who would purify them, who would lead them into glory. And they wrote about this person, this anointed one, in so much grand language. Most naturally, this Messiah was spoken of as a king, the king of the Jews, right? And the prophets said that this king would lead them into a golden age, the world to come under um, his rule as an unprecedented kingdom of glory. But he was also um, depicted as performing priestly functions. So the passage that we read this morning, Psalm 110, uh, the Lord says to the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the Messiah also had a prophetic calling um, as the servant of the Lord, the anointed to bring God's final word to his people. So perhaps the term Messiah or the anointed one that covered the prophets, priests, and kings was the best term of all to describe this future coming prophetic priest king who would deliver the people of God and bless them with unprecedented blessing. This um, promise of Messiah was so clear in biblical revelation that belief that a Messiah would come was not just isolated to some particular small Jewish sect. There was a widespread messianic expectation in first century Judaism. And indeed, up until the present, among Jews who do not believe in Jesus, Josephus seems to have identified a number of people who were sort of pseudo-messiahs in the early um, days. Later on, according to the Jewish Talmud, the rabbis would argue amongst themselves about when the Messiah would come and what he would look like. And even today, traditional Hasidic Jews believe that in every generation, they say, there is someone born who is worthy to be the Messiah if only it were the Lord's time and the people of Israel were worthy, then God would reveal him. Rabbi Akiba, one of the greatest scholars of the Jewish history, um, he lived shortly after Jesus, within a hundred years or so after Christ, and he believed that the Messiah was a man by the name of Simon Bar Kokhba. This man, uh, Bar Kokhba, fought a second war against Rome. You know, we all remember the the great war that Rome brought against Israel and destroyed the temple in 70. Well, well, Bar Kokhba fought an, an, again uh, against Rome, surprised the 10th legion, and recaptured Jerusalem. And he set up a government there that lasted two or three years 
Um, they minted coins. They offered sacrifices on the area where the temple used to be, and they even made plans to rebuild the temple. And so the greatest rabbi of the time considered that this man must be the Messiah. Ultimately, of course, Rome came and crushed that revolt and any illusions that Bar Kokhba was, in fact, the Messiah. But still, the people of Israel have continued in that expectation. The famous medieval scholar, uh, Jewish scholar Maimonides, he uh, laid down 13 principles of faith of Orthodox Judaism. Number 12 is this. I believe with perfect faith in the coming of Mashiach, and although he may tarry, still I await him every day. A modern rabbi summarizes Jewish belief this way. Mashiach, also known as Messiah, is the long-awaited Jewish leader who will usher in an era of world peace and godly awareness. The Jewish Messiah is a human being, a descendant of King David, who will lead the Jewish people back to the land of Israel, where they will serve God in peace, leading the nations of the world in attaining an understanding of the Creator. Messiah will also rebuild the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, establishing an era of peace and prosperity that will endure forever. So you can see that this is... This has not only been an expectation in Jesus' day, but continues to be. But all of these ideas about the Messiah have one thing in common, and that is that their conception of the Messiah is far too small. Jesus challenges that conception with this question. Whose son is he? Now, they give the traditional answer, of course, which is the Messiah will be the son of David, right? And that's true as far as it goes. He will be a son of David. He will be a descendant from the line of David. This was promised in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The prophets continually spoke about an end-time David who would rule over the people of Israel, who would shepherd the people of God, who would lead them into glory. So it, it was true. In fact, Christian theology teaches the same thing. This is why Matthew uh, traces the line of Jesus through King David, right? Um, this is affirmed all over the New Testament. This is why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. But Jesus insists here that the Christ is more than merely the son of David. He is the son of David, but that's not sufficient to understand who he is. How is it, Jesus says, then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Quoting from Psalm 110. Now, I want to stop here and just give a side note Jesus, about the way Jesus talked about the scripture. Right? Jesus asserts, notice this, that David did not speak of his own accord. He wrote what he wrote by the Spirit. This is what Jesus believed about the Old Testament. 
that it was divinely inspired. There are people all over the place today that say, well, you know, David or Peter or whoever, you know, they were just reflecting their own ideas, their own culture. Um, it doesn't really apply to us, you know. Uh, that's just Moses or Paul's opinion about something. They were humans. They, you know, is their best ideas about God. No, friends, the Bible teaches that every scripture writer, listen to this, every scripture writer was moved by the very spirit of God so that what he wrote was authoritatively the word of God. This was Jesus' view of the scripture. This is the view that's expressed in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, when he says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Listen, you should just decide right now that what the Bible says is God's authoritative word for you, and you're going to submit to it. You're just going to let God speak and just believe and accept what he says. To live your life, not on the basis of your own ideas about what may or may not be true in the Bible. Either you stand as a judge over the Bible or you let the Bible and God's word stand as a judge over you. And brothers and sisters, I plead with you that you let God say what he says and yield to it and find there a joy of living under his lordship. This was Jesus' view of the scripture. Now, let's come back to what he, what he says. He quotes from Psalm 110 that we read earlier, verse 1, when he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus engages in a kind of some theological reasoning. He says, now, if David calls him Lord then how is he his son, right? Because, uh, and, and in one sense, of course, the Messiah is a son of David, a, a descendant of David, but David calls him my Lord, indicating that this must not be all that he is. He is something greater. This is a term of deference. It's a term of honor, right? Now, to say that David was writing about himself. And some people have said this. David was writing about himself. God is speaking to him. The Lord said to my Lord. That David's writing about himself in the third person. To say that will do no good. I can see perhaps saying that David would refer to himself in this way. The Lord says to David or the Lord says to the king... Or even the Lord says to his anointed one, which would be even more suggestive, right? But he would never write about himself. The Lord says to my Lord. Again, to say that David wasn't really the author, that maybe that this was written by Levites or some other hymn writer, and it was written speaking about David. So the Lord says to my Lord David is no good either. This is simply to deny the very thing, the very thing that all first century Jews actually believed. 
which is that this passage was written by David. And that's why this passage actually silenced them. No, this is a modern expedient made possible only by those who've rejected Jesus' claims ahead of time. It's clear that David is speaking about someone else and someone far greater than himself, right? My Lord. One of the great messianic passages in the Bible that links David um, with Messiah is Isaiah chapter 11. And in verse 1, look at the way the Bible speaks about this son of David. There shall come forth a shoot, a choter, a a, a small twig or a little branch springing up uh, from the stump of Jesse, who was, of course, David's father. So right here's, here's the family line of David cut off in the judgment of God, but here's, here's a, a sprout that comes out of it. But then look down in verse 10, and the prophet in that same text says, in that day, the sheresh, the root, the, the base, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. And he goes on and talks about him in those kinds of terms. In other words, the Messiah will be both the offshoot coming out of David, a descendant of David, and at the same time, the root of David, the origin of David, the one who was before as well as the one who comes after. Do you see how this is embedded in all of the scriptures? So by faith, we hear Jesus himself say in Revelation chapter 22, verse 6, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things to the churches. Look at what Jesus says now. I am the root and the descendant of David. And his authorship of the 110th Psalm speaking about the Messiah. And I've said to notice this, that the Messiah of Psalm 110 is distinguished from God, the Father, because the text reads this way. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Adonai, my Lord, my Master, Although, in fact, sometimes the term Adonai is used for God himself. The Lord says to my Lord, so this Adonai is distinct from God, though the term can be used for God, and yet he's also someone clearly greater than David, right? So who is he? Somebody says, maybe he's an angel, But the writer of Hebrews reasons in a really powerful way, in chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, listen, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? No, he says, are not they, that is the angels, all ministering spirits, they're servants of God, sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? No, in fact, the the language of the 110th Psalm speaks of someone far greater than any angel. All of this then begs the question, if the Messiah 
is not ultimately the son of David, then whose son is he? And the answer came out of heaven from none other than God himself on at least two occasions. This is my, what? Beloved son. I am well pleased with him. Hear him. This is the son of God. That's why Jesus over and over again referred to God not merely as our father, like any good Jew might do, but uniquely as my father. He is my father in a unique way. And so an angel um, or even a great king might be referred to as a son of God, small s, right? Sometimes the Bible uses that kind of terminology. But this son is from all of the scripture spoken of throughout uh, with terminology that indicates that he is far greater than any angel or even the greatest of any earthly king. And in fact, on the first day of the very next week after Jesus spoke these words, what would happen? His body would be raised from the dead. He would be brought out of the tomb and ascend up into heaven to the very right hand of the throne of God. And David, his bones were still in the tomb. Right? That was Peter's argument in Acts 2, where he quotes this psalm as well, Psalm 110. He says, so David wasn't speaking about himself. Listen, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ was God's greatest declaration about the identity of the Messiah. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, the Messiah, our Adonai, our Kurios, our Lord. The only faithful conclusion that someone can come to, and I have been convinced by this more than ever, the only faithful conclusion that someone can come to when they put together all of the texts throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament about the coming Messiah is the conclusion that the writer of Hebrews comes to in chapter 1, verse 2 and following when he writes, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after the making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, David's son is also David's Lord. The shoot from Jesse is also the 
root of Jesse, the son of man, is also the son of God. So what Jesus was demonstrating was simply this. It is that the scope of the Bible's teaching about Messiah, the scope of the gospel is far grander than they ever imagined. It's like somebody from the East Coast, somebody who grew up on the East Coast. And, and this, this is not to put down the East Coast, all right? So uh, my wife is from the East Coast. Uh, somebody who grew up in the Eastern part of the United States and who comes to the West for the first time. And they're trying to imagine what it might be like Maybe they've heard somebody talk about it. But I don't, I don't think, and this is spoken of, of as, uh, by uh, uh, me as somebody who's, who's from Arizona, but I don't think that anything can quite prepare you for, for when you first come out to the vast, incredible expanse of the West, the sheer distances. You know, when, when people talk about... Um, canyons or valleys or ravines you know somebody from the east might picture the rolling smokies or the poconos or something but nothing has prepared them for when they stand at the foot of this 14,000 foot rocky peak this sheer rock face standing before them with snow covering the top of it i mean it's just the, the scale is beyond what they were able to imagine before or or maybe uh maybe they imagine the valleys or the ravines of Tennessee or of Pennsylvania and, and, and nothing then compares to being able to stand on the edge of Grand Canyon and look out over this huge, vast expanse and down into this great crevasse. It's just like their mind is blown. And that's the way I think that the conception of the Jews in Jesus' day was the, was far too limited. Their understanding of the gospel was far too small. Their conception of the Messiah was much too meager. The Savior must be both Lord and Christ, God and man, David's Lord as well as David's Son. Only that Christology does justice to the unfathomed depths of human depravity because we are more sinful and more needy than they imagined. And because of that, that the problems of humanity are too great to be overcome by any mere human. Sin is so rampant. It is so ingrained so untamable in the human soul that it would take more than a man to save us. This Christology faithfully presents the unimagined heights of the Messiah's greatness, which was far greater and higher than they imagined. He is God himself, deity in human flesh, whose origins have been from of old, from everlasting. And so in the end, only God gets the glory for our salvation.
Only this Christology does justice to the incredible descent, the scale of descent from God's heights down to the lowliness of Christ's self-sacrifice so that the gospel is more gracious than they ever imagined. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. You can see this grand descent from the heights of heaven down to the lowest depths of servanthood. And so he laid down his life as a servant, even being obedient to the point of death, the death on a cross. He is, the Messiah is no mere human martyr, but God showing his unfathomable love in his descent to us. And this is the only Christology that gives us a glimpse of the astounding elevation that awaits all who are united to the Messiah in his ascended glory. So the, our end is higher than anything that they imagined they conceived of the deliverance of the Messiah in mere earthly terms, political terms. But this deliverance is so much greater and higher. He lifts us up to a scale that we could never have imagined. Jesus himself prays it this way in John 17, verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. My glory as Lord. And then he says, Father, listen to this. I pray that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, what glory awaits those who are rescued by God himself to be lifted up and elevated up to the level of Messiah, which is none other than the level of communion with God forever. The scale of this thing, you see what I'm saying? The scale of it, the heights of it, the depths of it are far greater than they conceived of. The the revelation of this was embedded in their scriptures all along, and the Lord was just beginning to point them to a place where their eyes might be opened. Their whole comprehension of the gospel was far too limited. But there was a more subtle and yet more foundational challenge here, I think, when Jesus asked them these questions. And that was that he was challenging their acceptance of his own personal identity. He's challenging them, and in fact challenging all of us, as to whether we accept not only that the Messiah is this grand, but that he the Messiah is this grand. It is no mystery that he claimed to be Messiah. Just a couple of days before, think about this, just a couple days before, he himself had orchestrated a scene so as to ride into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture to the acclamation of the people shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, to the son of David. 
The very answer that these people give. Who is Messiah? Who is the Christ? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. And and the unbelievers said, hey, rebuke them. This is blasphemy they're speaking. And Jesus said, if you silence them, even the rocks will cry out Messiah's praise, right? It, It is no secret. Here was the Messiah standing right there in front of them, the son of God. When he says, whose son is he? He did not say, whose son will the Messiah be? (laughs) But says it to them in the present, whose son is he? As if he is right here before you. And of course, that's the implication. If only they would believe it. Because it is true. He is here. The real question for them was not, is the Messiah the son of God? But are you willing to accept his authority as the son of God, to submit to his lordship. And I have to ask that to all of you, to all of you who are listening. Do you accept the lordship of Jesus, the Messiah? Gladly submit to him as you would submit to God to put your life completely in his hands, to trust his word. What about you? What do you think of the Christ? And I plead with you in the words of the psalmist, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, break down any barriers that are still in our hearts to the sovereignty, to the lordship, to the majesty of Jesus as the Messiah. Lord, any sin, any other God, any philosophy or belief that fights against his lordship, we pray that you would right now tear it down in our hearts. I pray that if there's any who has never bowed the knee to Christ today, that you would open their eyes, that they might see who he is, and that they would be truly and genuinely saved brought into his kingdom and made happy subjects of the sovereign Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen.